out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastor. I'm with you for the next 60 minutes for another pack program. As you know, always playing the finest in indie pop, but... We also love a special guest. This week it is going to be the turn of Robin Miller, record producer, musician and also businessman um, who's worked with an amazing amount of artists, um, one of the most famous being, um, yes, Sade and that first classic album, Diamond Life, but also has gone on to work with a phenomenal amount of other people and is now currently the chairman of Chrysalis Records and also Blue Raincoat Music. This is the interview and this is the uh, opening line after we had some casual chat where I asked about those early musical influences and his early, you know, narrative. And this was Robin's response. Robin, it's over to you. It's an interesting topic I think for everybody but um, I think what's really interesting for me is that I was very much stereotypical of what you just described but I think where I was lucky was the fact that I eventually I was just very determined you know to do something involved in in music music business industry was what I wanted to be in but you know it took me 10 years to find out what I was best at doing, which was being in the studio, you know, putting records together rather than being. So, yeah, I started at school playing the guitar and then doing local gigs around pubs and clubs around while at school. Then I went to college and joined a couple of bands in college. And then about two years after I left, and then I got a job with a record company with and stopped making music. You know, I, I thought, well, I want to be in music. Um, none of the college bands have, you know, been signed up to record deals or anything. So I, I kept writing songs, um, but I got a job at Polydor Records in the royalty department, very unglamorous part of the record company, just processes the payment. And I did that for a while. And then a friend of mine and I got a chance to write some music for a possible musical that was going to be put on. And we had to go to Paris. And I started playing, playing the guitar and singing in the subway, in the metro there. And an American guy came along and he said, I'm a sax player, you're a guitar player. There's a session at a recording studio outside of Paris. Um, we need a guitarist, would you like to come along? So I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, but I didn't, all I had was a, an acoustic guitar. He said, it's an electric guitar session. I said, well, are there any guitars at the studio? And he said, yeah, yeah, there are. So I turned up to the studio called the Chateau, about 30 kilometers outside Paris in a big old country house. And I did the session and that went okay. And the guy who owned the studio, the nice guy, Pierre, um, was talking to me over dinner and said, what are you doing? What do you like to do? And I said, well, I've just been, I am technically still working for a record company, but I'm not really enjoying it. And I wanted to make music. And he said, are you interested in the studio side? And I said, well, yeah, I am, because my sister always went out with 
rock musicians. And so I got to sort of hang out in the studios when I was younger. I've always liked studios. And he said, you want a job as a trainee, as an apprentice? And I said, well, I don't have anywhere to live. He said, well, this is a residential, you know, you can stay here. So that was my moment, David, that my pivotal moment really was, you know, over dinner with Pierre and saying, there's a job here if you want it. And I, I said to him, you know, my eyesight's not very good. And I've found it quite difficult to get opportunities. Um, one of the reasons I took the job at Polydor was because I applied for about 40 jobs when I left college. And that was the only interview I got because people were a bit worried about having someone with bad eyesight. And he said, oh, don't worry about that. We'll work around that. But studio is a good place for someone. So I was there for three or four years. And then in the third year, the, the studio started um, a little record label because they wanted to use the studio time that wasn't being booked to do something useful because studio time is very expensive. And if you're a band, and remember nowadays people have got home recording setups on their computers. And so it's quite easy to make tracks without a record contract. But in those days, if you were a band, you know, you couldn't make a, the studio was the key. So he said, well, you can, you can produce those sessions. You can engineer and you can actually produce. I didn't really know what a producer specifically was, except that he was the person in charge or he or she was the person in charge. So they were, what you were talking about, David, this was post-punk. So they were, I suppose, still very, very affected by the sort of alternative to the mainstream, but a little bit more musically sophisticated than their British equivalents. It's just one of those continental things. And I produced a band called Extra Ball and we put out a couple of 12 inch singles and they were successful. And um, the band was offered a a record deal by then called CBS Records, now Sony. And so I was sort of player producer. So I went on the road with the band and um, didn't really enjoy it. I didn't really like being in the limelight, didn't like being, you know, center stage, realized I was kind of more comfortable off stage. So they actually got another guy whom I'm still friendly with called Lolita Carabine. Um, the Lita machine gun um, to play guitar. And then so I switched and I produced three albums with them and they were successful. And then I played guitar on various sessions in the studio and a few of those were quite big hits. And so I had a sort of bit of a track record as a producer of Extra Bowl and then a bit of a track record as a guitar player from these quite successful records I played guitar on. Um, and then that took me to the early 80s when I was 30. And um, I got married to an American who was working in London for the Rolling Stones. And I thought, well, I can't, we can't conduct this marriage with me being in Paris and her being in London. So I came back to at London decided to set up my own recording studio and that's that's a long answer to your first question. No, that, no it's interesting. 
because I guess with everybody, they get the break. You know, they have to make it. Obviously, it's like anything. You, you yes. have to create it. But I just remember the story, the guy who went on to develop, was it Beats Music or the Beats Headphones, Jimmy I... Jimmy Iveen, yes. Iveen. And he's, he's kind of being this little teen hustler, suddenly getting asked to, I don't know, sit in and sweep the floor when John Lennon was then. Suddenly mm. went from this kind of nobody to suddenly hanging out. I, I know I know Jimmy Iveen and... He is a very typical sort of little Italy street hustler. <laughs> and yes. um, I think a bit like me, determined to be successful at, because he started as an assistant in the studio. Um, and um, the reason Jimmy got on was that he was mouthy, you know, he was confident, he was mouthy. And so he'd be sitting, supposedly just assisting in the studio with uh, Bruce Springsteen and, um, Bono, and he'd have you know, and he'd have an opinion about what they were doing, and um, that's usually absolutely forbidden. You know, if you're the assistant, you don't do anything; you just keep your head down. Um, but yeah, he's a um, he's a hustler. He told me a, that there was remember the quakes a few years ago in um, Los Angeles, and I yeah. rang, I rang, I rang Jimmy, and I said. Um, I just thought I'd give you a ring, see how you are, because you're, I know your house is right on the beach in Malibu. And, and um, I guess I've just been reading that there, there's a sort of 0.5% chance that Malibu could actually be kind of cut off and drift into the Pacific Ocean. And he said, Robin, if you come from where I come from, you'll take 50-50. <laughs> he, he loved living in Malibu after living in Little Italy in New York. Yes, yes, he was. But yeah, determination and opportunity. So yeah, I mean, I guess I could have said no to going to Paris. I could have said no to the American guy who said, come and do a session, you know, in the studio you've never been to with a load of people you don't know. I could have said no to a guy I'd only met for 20 minutes saying, I'll give you a job if you want to stay here. Yeah. Yes, it's interesting like those early years, because because also the one thing that I was aware of, because I suppose the 80s was the decade that I was a bit older so I wasn't just kind of listening to music from the past I was just kind of listening to music that was happening and, and the 80s was quite fascinating because once you got you know it takes a few years for a decade to take shape and suddenly music was definitely a different there was different fashions you had that very sharp orientated sound which I often refer to as slightly Trevor Horn-esque and then you had yeah. the indie stuff that had come out of the post-punk Punk yeah. world that was like people like the Smiths and the June Brides and the Go-Betweens and bands like yeah. that. So there, there is a definite an 80s sound and then there were certain bands that also captured the sort of soundtrack of the 80s and one of them obviously and there was, a, yes, because there was a few albums that I, you know, in my sensitive way loved and and um, there was everything but the girl working week. Um, working yeah, and I also worked with the Go-Betweens as well. The go, right, the Go-Betweens. mixed fantastic. all their records, Go-Betweens. Right. Okay. I still, um, you know, I still, I always, I still had this parallel course as a, you know, mixing engineer, recording mixing engineer. So, and I would take whatever work was. It's interesting you talk about that parallel thing because um, Tracy Thorne, who was the singer with Everything But the Girl, said to me fairly recently, he said, you know, I, in in retrospect, Robin, um, I was unlucky because um, the, the world that me and Ben, everything but the girl, walked into, and that part of indie, she described it as 
you had to look like you just got off the bus and walked into the into the concert hall and you know walked on stage in completely dressed down and she said I haven't done a gig for 20 years and I was so scared and she said if I had been able to be Madonna or Joan Jett or a member of Queen or someone or, or one of the um, Trevor Horn group you know who could wear an amazing costume and a wig and have a different stage name altogether. She said I'd have been fine, but I had to walk on there as Trace, just got off the number 52 bus, you know, this is me. She said I didn't have the confidence to, I was absolutely terrified. Yes. Well, I, get, I, I mean, also, I mean, it's interesting. Well, with that period and, and having spoke to a lot of bands, that early 80s, there was a lot of unemployment. So a lot of those young kids, you know, if they went to university, that was quite amazing and quite unusual. But a lot of people were just unemployed. And then, you know, because yeah, there was, you know, the job seekers allowance, the enterprise allowance scheme. So it gave people a year of just being able to sign on without actually getting hassled. So a lot of people just formed bands out of an 18 year old boredom of wanting to think, well, we could. You know that um, my record company, Chrysalis, um, has got quite a lot of artists from that period. And um, it's been interesting. We've been watching, very interested in what's happening to the streaming uh, numbers, you know, whilst people are in lockdown. And our <laughs> successful track for the last three weeks has been Ghost Town by the Specials. Oh, yes. Yeah, that's... Um, that's... It seems to really, really hit the current mood. Yes, that, that record sort of doesn't go away, but then suddenly it becomes everywhere, doesn't it? Yeah, well, Rat Race, I think Rat Race and, and that record are important records. Yes, well, absolutely. They they say a lot. So so there was a there was a lot of well, what was quite interesting as well that you had back then the gatekeepers. You know, you had less places, but if you got one of those gatekeepers, you had sort of made it. Not made absolutely. It, but you you got your sort of uh, you got sort of a public profile. And I suppose again, I was kind of the John Peel person who you know if he played single, you know those kids playing in a band in any town yeah. in, in Britain or Europe or even America or Australia. Yeah. Um, you know, he gave it a spin. Then there was the potential John Peel session, which was huge. And then they would then get those gigs, all those little indie nights and all those little venues around the country. And everyone had one on a Monday, Tuesday or Wednesday when it was very... Yeah, amazing. I did. <laughs> At the Wag Club. <laughs> the Wag Club. So, yeah. you, know, you know, and people like myself went, oh, for £3, you could see three bands. And yeah, and Wag Club was the first place that Working Week played. It was, you know... Yes. And it was, it was so, so people like, you know, going back to Tracy Thorne, it was kind of interesting because that was a sound that was quite unique. So John Peel kind of liked that sort of stuff. He played it, you know, they get, they get that little bit of a launch and that's the thus, you know, you get the album and then you get sort of a, a, a ready-made crowd of people. A bit but like you're that. right. You still had to be signed up. I mean, they, they originally were very originally were signed up to Cherry Red when it was a, a live indie label. It's a catalog label now, but, uh, and then I think they did one or two things with Rough Trade, but then they ended up on uh, Rough Trade's other sister label, Blanco y Negro, which went through Warners. So they had to, you know, to get recognition, you're right, there weren't that many gatekeepers. And you could, you could thrive in, in that other world, but you didn't have the internet, you didn't have YouTube, you know, you couldn't go viral. You could be big in Hull or big in, <laughs> in Finchley, you know, but you couldn't really go viral without one of five or six 
um, record labels. Yes, absolutely. You know, and and there were there was a lot of little quirky ones like Fifty Third and Third and Pink the Pink yeah. Label, and um, there was one in Bristol, which is not Heavenly Records, but another one in Bristol. Anyway, I can't remember. But yeah, so so it was kind of it was all it was kind of obviously no one knows what's going to happen. And when David Bowie done that first album, Let's Dance, I mean he managed to sort of just about be in front of a zeitgeist moment. But then one of the artists that you you sort of I don't know if you. Uh, you stumbled on her but you know because I'd sort of got that first working week album and thought as a fan you know as one of those people who always wants to get the first album that no one else has heard because you think yeah. quite important when, yeah. when you're 18 and then Sade came along so how did they, you know and obviously that is that is kind of hitting the jackpot in Vegas really isn't it with with a moment like that because she then becomes she she then represents something completely different whereas everything but the girl was always going to be John Peel indie until the latter half where she hits that club club classic missing but up to then you know you're you're, you're kind of not pigeonholed but you've got your demographic let's put yeah quite so quite. but she went from sort of I remember an interview where she she was like poor living in squats so right mm. you know when am I going to make a living and mm. it all yeah. relate to that and you know she she sort of hurdled out of you know avoided the John Peel world went straight into the face and sort of every record late every every person who kind of liked music owned you know phil collins the face simply read Sade and paul paul simon's graceland there were three four albums yeah, there that everyone, right. everyone it was like um is it pete frampton you know everyone owned you know frampton comes, frampton along, comes alive yeah so um i remember i remember a fantastic conversation about when am i going to make a living um and the, the record company guy guy coming down and saying um we're going to release when am i going to make a living as the next single and we were all slightly really we didn't really think you know we thought maybe the fourth single or something and he said well the record's doing so well that it's not really going to ring true if we leave another six months because you're clearly making a very good living now Yes. Well, I suppose it's like money's, money's too tight to mention, isn't it? It's suddenly like... Yeah, yeah, yes. <laughs> so, yeah, so when... So we, there was definitely a soundtrack, wasn't there, that that sort of we yeah. kind of loved and, and then probably got a bit over, overdone with. So can you remember, probably you do, a lot, uh, much about that particular session and how it came together? I re what I remember was that I had done some work... Um, in Paris with quite a few African bands, particularly from Kenya and um, Tanzania, and had um, managed to get some of them released through Virgin. And um, had met a couple of people at Virgin, including Jeremy Lascelles, who's still my business partner today. He was an a &R, in fact, he was Phil Collins' a &R Virgin. And, um, we, uh, I was approached by a, a, a girl from Chile, Claudia, who said, this is the 10th anniversary of Chilean solidarity and nobody is taking any notice of all the disappeared. And we'd like to make a record, we've written it. And so I pulled together the basis of the Working Week team and uh, Tracy and, working on the same formula at the studio that I'd grown up in, I had started the studio power plant and had decided that once again, I should use the free studio time to do interesting things and had 
been influenced by a couple of the Red Wedge people to want to do some charity things. And this was a perfect opportunity. So we put a shout out on a Sunday saying anyone who can play faintly Latin jazz music, come to the studio. We're making a record for Philly in Solidarity. So it, you know, so about 30 people turn up, percussionists, horn players, keyboard players, drummers, bass players, etc. So I sort of corralled them all into shape and we made a 11 minute track um, and then a, a, a sort of shorter single version. It's called Pensaremos, We Will Win. Uh, and actually that originally it had Tracy singing on it. it then as you will remember, David, appeared on the Working Nights album, but with Juliet singing. Mm. You know, we, we redid the vocal because she was a singer of the band. Anyway, so that was that. The following day, a guy rang me and said, um, two members of the band that I manage were in your studio last night and they said they really enjoyed it. They thought that you did a really good job working with all these people and um, can I come and play you my band. And I said, well, what sort of music is it? And he said, all he said, he said, it's sort of jazzy and the singer's African. So I said, ah, well, I've, I, I, I've got a bit of a soft spot for African music. I've done quite a lot of it. And um, I actually rang Jeremy at Virgin and just said, oh, we had a good, a, a good session on the, for the Spencer Ramos track, and I'm meeting this guy and blah, 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 African. And he said, well, you know me, Robert, I like African music as well. So Lee came along and he had demos of, uh, when am I going to make a living? Your love is king. And a very, very rudimentary version of Smooth Operator. So I said, well, it doesn't sound very African, but um, he's got a great voice. And he said, well, she was the backing singer. And, uh, but the backing, the lead singer's left. And so she's talking about taking opportunities. She's put her hand up and said, I'd like to have a go at being the lead singer. And um, I think, to be really honest with you, David, the next thing that happened was that she came from her squat in her beat up old Woolsey car to the studio to come and meet me and talk to me. And the impact, and she was wearing a pair of faded jeans, African type sandals, big hoop earrings, a t shirt that she clearly spilt most of her breakfast over, and a head long threads tied up in a headscarf and she came in and she absolutely charmed and captivated the entire studio staff the other two bands who were working in the other studios she just had charisma just total and utter charisma and we talked for about an hour and a half two hours and then robert elms who was her boyfriend at the time a journalist came and joined us and the conversation was only about 30% about music, her music, their music, the band's music, another 20 or 30% about other music. And funnily enough, she was a Phil Collins fan. 
but she was also a fan of lots of other things that we both liked going back in the day. And um, Rob... was it was it the case then when when you saw that? Because obviously no one knows what a hit's going to be. But do you sort of see something that you think this is? Because there must be times when you think, well, this is all very good. I mean, you know, there's always these documentaries, I say always, there's occasionally a documentary where they'll get a top producer and a top songwriter and various other people on, you know, it's the BBC Four on a Friday night and they're going to say, you know, yeah. like, we've got Guy Chambers, we've got this person, this, and yeah. we're going to create this amazing song. And then you listen to the final product, you know, after you know, watching this yeah. for an hour and think, hmm, not really. We're not going to be well, that song in a year. So when you heard those songs from Sade, did you think, Ooh, you know, a bit like the Trogs tape, you know, oh, there's some fairy dust on this one. Well, I, see, my dad told, reminded me time and time again that I rang him at midnight that day and said, and I quote, I've met this singer, Dad, and I reckon if I get the job of producing her, I've cracked it. Those were my exact words. It was, and... What I learned from working, when I was at the Chateau, where I was for three and a bit years, I was very lucky, David, because while I was there, David Bowie recorded Half of Heroes, Elton John recorded Honky Chateau, um, the whole of the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack was recorded there, Fleetwood Mac recorded there, The Grateful Dead recorded there, and I was there in the room the whole time, so I watched great records being made by great producers with great charismatic artists. And I noticed that they all had really good encouraging record companies and that they all had certain objectivity about seeing themselves from their fans. They'd refer to themselves in the third person often. And in Sade, so in other words, I kind of learned how to kick tires. You know, in other words, Someone might have a great voice or they might look great, but that's not enough. It's the music business. It's, it's hard. It's cutthroat. Is there the determination? Is there the charisma? Is there something in the voice that's completely unique? The songs you can improve, you can get collaborators in. The arrangements I could fix. I was, you know, I'd been to college to learn arranging. I knew how to fix these things. But um, it, it, they do, there does have to be a certain star quality. And then, of course, you have to know that, that there are green lights all the way. So we started recording, and immediately I set about letting record companies know and inviting them down and in. And um, Virgin did make an offer for her, and so did CBS. But CBS said, um, we'll give you more creative control and she wanted creative control. Um, so that's why we went in that direction. So yeah, I, I, did, I did spot it, but I'm not saying I'm the only one who spotted it. You know, I was no. the one who spotted it and was in the right place to help them. Yes, absolutely. You've got, if it's a band, you have to have a good studio, David. Yes. Got no money, you know. So, so yeah, it's just quite interesting because you, you sort of mentioned, you know, David Bowie there and I, I sort of always been obsessed with him. Thankfully, that was my first single and first album. And yeah. I sort of stuck with him 
because you know your first love never goes away so yeah. you know, I, I went through those decades and different even know, tin machine <laughs> even the tin machine years, <laughs> even listen to the live album yeah and, and the drum and bass experience so it's kind of you know I could I could understand why you know even though I had to guess that you know after his two albums in the 80s after Let's Dance he needed to do something quite drastic and that was drastic and then his drum you know drumming bass he was obviously going for quite a different I um, think David Bowie is a very good analogy, and I'd say the same about Sade. And um, I think David Bowie made a lot of us think that it was okay to be us, suddenly, um, where we hadn't felt that it was okay to be us if we were a bit different. And yes. Sade for mixed race and black girls in the UK made it made them think that they could be successful and glamorous and you know well well she certainly went from sort of squatland to you know like everywhere and you know into the mainstream she didn't just sort yeah, of st stay did. with a with a little clique uh, sort of place but you know interestingly the cbs were clever they they released hang on to your love as the first single in america because they said we're very determined that Sade should get her black audience in America. So we're going to release the most R&B friendly track and we're going to release it first to R&B radio. Because if you're, if you get your black audience, they'll stay with you, even if you then cross over to pop success. If you're a black artist and you get pop success straight off, the black audience will turn its back on you. So whether you think that was right or wrong or the good thing, but that's exactly the process. And her first, so her first award was a Black Music Award presented to her by Stevie Wonder. Her first, you know, chart record was a, 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 a R&B chart record, Hang On To Your Love, yes. released, I think. Yeah, because what, because um, because it's interesting, you mentioned Red Wedge, and um, that was one of those kind of things, again, it sort of, made the decade quite uh, you know like one way or the other in a lot of ways yeah sort of a, a certain age and, and oh yeah of, well with thatcher it was fairly easy to have something to <laughs> <laughs> so so that was quite interesting and obviously you mentioned as well african music because at that stage you know i was recording the, the old john peel show every night on a tdkd 90 cassette and thinking trying to sort of virtually like everything he played and and find finding it all quite sort of fascinating and interesting and yeah. obviously one of those bands and soundtracks that we loved was the Bundy Boys so that was yeah. another kind of one of your uh, moments yeah. I mean you're very good at getting the zeitgeist at these things because the Bundy Boys I mean there were quite a few African bands and obviously you know you had the Paul Simon Graceland thing which was a bit more kind of tricky and that requires a documentary but but the Bundy Boys were the authentic thing that first album Shabina came out and was like yeah. okay that's incredible and then they got the you know on the record label and you know, toured with Madonna so what was it like sort of take you know take you know, putting your hand into into that kind of um into those mixes as well because obviously it's easy for me because I'd been working with so many African musicians in Paris um, so I felt very much at home with the Bundu boys. And um, I'll tell you an interesting thing that happened. There's a guy, I won't, I won't give his name out, but um, he's a very well-known DJ on the BBC, and he was a devotee of African music, to put it mildly. But he was a devotee in a rather kind of patronising way. And... I remember him critiquing the first record I made with him, 
through JIT and saying that I had betrayed their African heritage and destroyed the integrity of their sound by using an electronic drum kit and a Yamaha synthesizer. And I was annoyed, but I was also amused because he saw Africans like sort of movies from the 1940s or something. Whereas of course, you know, the people that I met, yes, they were from Zimbabwe, but they listened to American radio and, you know, UK Western radio. And they liked all, you know, I mean, I said, well, who do you like? Well, we like the police. We like um, country and Western. We like, you know, this, um, you know just the usual sort of melange of, of the same music as everyone else. And they said, but we can't, you can't buy what they call, you know, American instruments here. And they, they, their dream was the drummer just said, I want a, 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 an electronic drum kit, you know, so I can get more interesting modern. And the keyboard player said, I just need a better synthesizer. I just want to get more interesting sounds. So as an enabler, I said, fine, you know, let's make this happen. So I didn't treat them as a quotes African band, David. You know, they were just a band as far as I was concerned. And they made the music that they made, and I tried to make it as uh, fresh, you know, and as enjoyable, and and to, to reflect their sort of joy for living, but in a slightly more coherent and and perhaps better recorded and better organised way. And then I was actually at the time I was um, talking to Madonna about possibly working with her, which she quite rightly in the end decided not to do. But um, one of the reasons that she had reached out to me was because she'd heard the Bundu Boys record and loved it. And as you quite rightly say, he then took them on a world tour with, with her. And that's yes. always said to people, I've got the luckiest job in the world because I produce the record. I work hard for five, six, seven weeks. And then the band slogs around the world, does all these horrible TV shows in Iceland at 10 o'clock in the morning in February. I mean, Iceland, the country, you know. Yes. Um, and I sit at home and wait for the records to sell. Yes, which is, which is an ideal thing. Because I do remember it was Brian Eno who, who said when they were doing David Bowie, probably the live album, well, let's just experiment, let's have some fun, because no one is going to die from this experience. Which you know, Good, which like is ninety nine percent, ninety nine point nine percent true, <laughs> and um, and I always thought you know, I mean that those kind of philosophies and uh, and uh, ideas, especially for an artist who probably got to a point where they're thinking, I'm a little bit bankrupt and I really don't want to do what I just done, which is kind of you know bring out sort of pinups. You know, that's interesting. Um, I once I'd had a lot of success with a few records, I was given the opportunity to work with people much further along the line of their career. And I did it a couple of times, but you know, people became scared, David. The record company, even the artists, they, they became scared of losing what they had. Whereas when you work with a debut artist, the record company's got a few demos, a, you know, a bunch of half-baked ideas and sort of hope, and it's an adventure. So 
you're not exactly completely left alone, but provided what you're turning out is basically sounds interesting and good, you know, they'll kind of let you go. Whereas suddenly if you're making someone's ninth record, there's 50 people saying, oh, I don't think we should do, oh no, I don't think our fans would like that, or oh, I don't think we should do that. So it is an opportunity, as you say, no one will die, but you know, it's an opportunity to have an adventure. And I don't believe that the best recipe for success is to try to sound as much like something else that's in the charts at the moment as possible. It rarely works. And when people ask me, you know, challenge me on that, I'll say, well, who sounded like Madonna? Who sounded like you too? Who sounds like Stormzy? Who sounds like Ed Sheeran? Who, you know, who sounds like Coldplay? And the answer is, well, nobody. And I go, well, exactly, exactly, exactly. It's sounding like nobody is what makes it fresh and what makes it interesting and what makes people want to possess it, particularly if it's a debut record. They want to hear something new. And I do still think that um, maybe the first 20,000 people who bought that Sade record, David, did, did have that same feeling, you know, this was something fresh and something new. Something yeah, well, no, yes, it definitely, it definitely hadn't been like that done before. And it's kind of interesting what you were saying, because, because I realised, um, sort of looking at that, you know, watching part of me pop and rock documentaries but I realized that the artists who were had made it so to speak in the 70s were mostly apart from say Phil Collins were really lost and instead of just saying we're going to produce what or make what we really want to mm. they started to almost copy what was in the charts so when you listen to that Robert some of those Robert Plant um, solo albums in the 80s and especially yeah. the which must be very cringy, and then exactly. then really Rod Stewart, and then Bowie almost got it with Let's Dance. He he almost got there before the floodgates opened. I, so no, I agree. I agree with that completely. So he he had sort of seen the change after Ashes to Ashes, and then but then his next two albums, and I, I and then I always remember Rod Stewart being interviewed, and 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 obviously there's the kind of music and his personal life, and he he kind of wanted to skim the '80s, and it wasn't about his personal life it was actually the music that he he wanted to sort of say yeah let's 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 go on to another decade that wasn't a good yeah. one and I realized that actually people instead of like I suppose they're taking their eye off the ball so to speak because it's like they're looking at the charts and like you said suddenly all these people around them saying what's in the charts we're going to try and do that but by the time that comes out it's like 12 14 18 months down the line exactly and, and well I mean and it sounds I mean, tired you know it it sounds well I turned down recording the what became the Road to Hell album by um, Chris Rea on the grounds that they just, they wanted to make a copycat Dire Straits record, which actually, if you hear it, that is kind of what they did. Um, and I just said, it doesn't interest me. You know, it, it, that's not a good reason for me wanting to work hard for seven weeks, you know, you know, in the studio. Yes. That would be a nightmare. Are you still there? Yeah. And uh, so, as with a lot of people in different worlds of art, you know, and I'm thinking also photographers here who they have a moment, don't they? Like, you know, the work of, say, Mick Rock, for example. Yeah. And I talked to another, oh, Kevin Cummins, who did the work of, I don't know, Punk. He was there Christmas Day yeah. with the, the Sex Pistols, Huddersfield. Who else would have been there apart from 100 other people? But he was there and he just brought a book out. And Everyone, a lot of people, and like the same with bands, they have that five years where they're really on it. And then yes. it's kind of tricky to keep it because 
Oh, I know. And, and so how do you also deal with that kind of change where you're thinking, I, I kind of need a rest, and, but the job leaves the minute I have a rest. So, you know, the, the stream is going and I'm going to be missing a lot of, it, of, of this. Because, you know, like with Mick Rock, you know, those pictures of David Bowie are amazing, but most people probably, probably thought, I have no idea why you want to keep photographing that guy. He's not going to make it dressed like that. And it's like, okay, you've hit gold. You know, that's, that's your CV there. So mm. how do you, you know, yourself, you know, looking back at some of the decisions and then sort of seeing certain chapters thinking that was kind of a chapter and now that's a different chapter. Um. I probably had about five years. Um, and in 1991, 92, I was, I felt that I was losing touch, David. I felt that when I, in 1982, three, four, five, I was a little bit older, but only a little bit older than the band. So I basically shared their um, musical taste. You know what I mean? I was listening to the same music they were. That makes sense? Yeah. And when I hit 40, I, I became very acutely aware that the particular way that I worked with young bands was very much a sort of partnership I'm I'm a little bit bossy and a little bit authoritative but only as a sort of extension of what the band are doing and what they want to do and I just felt the beginnings of a disconnect and I did actually sort of stop really and um and then I was approached by two people in a row to do something completely different both completely French, and remember, I hadn't made a French record, you know, since 1979, 1980. So it was like 11, 12 years, and I was approached by someone to produce an album by a French female singer. And because it was like nothing to do with anything, it was her third, fourth, fourth record. Um, so I did that, and then while I was in the middle of that, we did that at Pete Townsend's studio in Twickenham, Eel Pie. Um, I got a phone call from a guy saying, Malcolm McLaren would like to come and meet you and talk to you. And you don't turn that down. You don't turn that chance down. So Malcolm turned up to the studio and said that he was looking for a producer for his next album. And so I fluttered my eyelid, eyelashes, you know, and sort of looked falsely modest and said, which of my particular works do you admire so much that, you know, you have to have me? And he said, well, you speak French, don't you? And I said, yes. But he said, well, that's it. I just need a producer who speaks French. So I said, do you know anything about my work? He said, nothing at all. He said, just someone told me that, that you speak French and English. So this record's going to be about Paris, so you'll do it. So I, so I did that, uh, and that took me to about 1996. And then, once again, you know, so what I'm basically saying is I didn't work in London in the UK again after that, David. I then went to the States, and I spent the best part of a year with Grateful Dead, uh, compiling and remixing their entire back 
catalogue. And that led me to doing the Atlanta Olympic Games, which was once again a completely different experience. You know, just doing the music for an opening ceremony was completely and utterly different. Uh, and then I came back and apart from mixing, which I still do, um, I pretty much stopped. Yes. It's got to happen. I went out at the top. You went, yes, absolutely. And just yeah. briefly, and just almost lastly, I mean, with The Grateful Dead, I mean, there was, you know, obviously their studio albums and live ones, and then Dick's Picks, well, hundreds of them. I mean, how yeah. do you work with that? I mean, they have a lot of output, don't they, The Grateful Dead? Oh, my God. It was absolutely <laughs> unbelievable. They said, they, they, they took me into this mausoleum, you know, which was, because this was the, you know, all their tapes were big, big multi-track tapes the size of four bricks and wall to wall and it was a concrete bunker and they had a, a recording console desk in the middle of it and a couple of tape machines and they said we just want you to mix this stuff for us Robin and um, the sound was terrible it was just this big concrete room and I said I can't mix records in here it sounds terrible and so the drummer actually had a a much better okay studio in a barn in his ranch so I went and sort of moved in there um, but Jerry Garcia the guitarist died the, the day after I got there and so everything kind of went weird um, the band was supposed to be doing a tour that didn't happen I was sitting in the studio waiting to start and actually did start on a couple of tracks and everybody in the music industry went up to pay their respects because Grateful Dead are such legends, you know, in America. And Jerry Garcia was such a legend. So I inadvertently met Carlos Santana, Bill Clinton, David Crosby, Bob Dylan, Grace Slick, um, Joe Byers, all these people who get, you know, drifting in and wondered what this English bloke was doing, sitting, sitting there, you know, seemingly working, oblivious to the grief and distress. So it turned into a strange year, but we did mix. Uh, of course, they didn't know what they had, David. They had they had a hundred versions of, of, of Fire in the Mountain, you know. I mean, I mean <laughs> uh, most of them terrible, by the way. Yes. Um, most of them terrible. But anyway, we did, we had a, and then I say, then we got sidetracked because the drummer Mickey was asked to present the opening ceremony for Atlanta and he basically said to me will you please stay and do it with me because I you know it's too big a project so I did that and then mm -hmm. parents both died and I uh, flew back to the UK and that must have been quite a looking back on it you know that must have been a shock to me um, and uh, that, that was sort of it, really. And as I say, I've, I've been basically mixing. I help a lot of young artists still. I give them free advice. And sometimes I will help them with their early recordings. And of course, I, I'm now, I run a business, very good business with Jeremy Lascelles. And uh, so we own Chrysalis Records and we've got new artists, you know, about to come out on Chrysalis. 
Yes, and and just kind of lastly, I mean, one of those uh, bands, Cigarettes After Sense, yeah. which is a very John Peel kind of band. Yeah, it is. But yeah. I did hear a version of a song that, frankly, I wouldn't say. I mean, it was there because you can miss it. Um, but they remix. They they really did it. I love when bands re redo a song, not just kind of do the original because you must listen to the original. And I thought, God, keep on loving you. I didn't realise it could be that beautiful. Mm. And did you have the same experience thinking, God, they've really done a nice number on this? Well, I can let you into a little secret, which is that I now mix and master all of their records. Oh, fantastic. Well, wow, so, it all makes sense. <laughs> um, what, what happened was I just, um, they delivered two records that have been mastered at a big mastering lab in New York. And they said, which one do you prefer? And I said, neither of them. And they said, why not? And I, I said, well, I just don't think either of them are as good as they could be. And I said, will, if you, will you send me the raw unmastered version and I'll try and show you what I mean? So that's what I did. And then the singer said, wow, that's, that's what I've always wanted my voice to sound like. So I said, well, wait, the acid test, Greg, will be wait until you hear it on your Alexa speaker or the radio and then see whether you agree that I'm good with voices, you know. So, yeah, so I've been, I've been, I've probably changed them sonically quite a bit. Yes, absolutely. I mean, that, um, it's quite an extraordinary song, actually. That was just one that just, um, you know, it's one of those ones, isn't it? It just jumps out and you think, mm. oh, that's, that is a bit special. Mm. That is a very special But that's song. been an exciting ride because we, you know, when we took them on, they were playing sort of four or 500 seaters, but hardworking once again, you know, you know, prepared to get on a plane and go wherever they were wanted. And they're now playing five, 6,000 seater um, arenas. So it's been a lovely journey, actually. And, and going back to our beginning of our conversation, it's, I didn't enjoy being on stage. I didn't enjoy having the spotlight on me, but I get a huge amount of pleasure being involved with other younger people who do have success, David. It's just, there's nothing like it. There's yes. nothing than being just in the shadow on one of the tables nearish the front of the stage at an award ceremony and screaming and clapping when one of your protégés or artists or, you know, comes up to, you know, get some sort of award. It's great. Really yes, well, absolutely. Great. And Robin, just last one. What would you say to an 18-year-old self just starting out and you're thinking, oh, there's just a few, <laughs> few things. I've, I won't bore you, but I've got a couple of things that just remember these ones, you know, as you start that journey, because that's what I've learned. <laughs> Um, if you want to do it, nothing will stop you. And you have to be grateful for the little crumbs of the table that will buy you a bit more time. That's what I'd say, David. I'd say there were points right the way along the line where I thought, I'll have to stop now. You know, I can't do this any longer. And then I don't know, someone would pay me 50 quid for doing something. And I'd go, wow, you know, and that would sustain me for a bit longer or someone would just ask me to help them with a lyric or write a, you know, play a bit of guitar or something and it would just keep you going. But what you're really saying to yourself is I will, I will do almost anything. I just need that little bit of 
you know, encouragement, which is, um, and, and that does come from the outside. So you do need little bits of encouragement from the outside. It's one of the reasons that we love the company that we run, you know, is that, is that if, if that's all we do, it's just that if all I do is that one of our young writers, if I take them out to a meal that they can't afford to go to twice a year, David, and say, I like that song. I thought that lyric that you wrote there was really good. I think, you know, that was better than that. It keeps them going for another six months. So I'd say, don't worry about it because if you're meant to make it in the music business, you may not end up doing the thing that you're doing now, but you will find little things that will sustain you. And if it's not meant to be, then it's not meant to be. Yes. It's interesting, isn't it? Just kind of, you did, you know, looking at David Bowie's 60s work, thinking, wow, that was not going anywhere fast, was it? No, <laughs> no, exactly. No, I mean, it really wasn't going anywhere fast. <laughs> oh, I often, and, what, what, what always amazes me is like, who would have bought it? You know, you had the Stones, Jimi Hendrix, The Doors, and then I know. some weird little, weird sort of folky pop with, with a funny, silly little voice, really. Yeah, I have no idea. I'd love to have asked him or someone asked him, what were you thinking? <laughs> it was just so not of its time. Mm. But then, you know, things happen. You know, Angie, Tony Visconti. And, yeah, exactly. Uh, and uh, yeah, Tony DeFries, that's it. Yeah, so there was, there was a few things. But obviously, as you said, he really wanted it because he had five years of playing Chroma Pier pubs in Norwich, pubs here, there and everywhere, you know, yeah. as within a band who played six months, you know, and, and you know, were no more than a pub band of the time, you know. And, exactly, um, yeah. And that is the end of the interview. Thank you ever so much for listening. That was Robin Miller, as I mentioned, and as you would have gathered there has worked with phenomenal amount of people and had an incredible successful life in music. This has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do at C86 Show. And also I've been podcasting these for the last few years and you can find those on Spotify, iTunes and Podbean. We love Podbean. So yes, go to C86 Show. Thank you for listening. <laughs>